0: We are starting, though, with some news about the negotiations between the B.C. government and the B.C.G.E.U. A tentative deal reached at the bargaining table. And joining us to talk more about this is B.C.G.E.U. President Stephanie Smith. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me, Jill. Uh,
0: So tell us a bit about this deal and uh, why you think it's uh, good enough that you'll take it to the members and they will vote in favour. Well, uh, I, uh, to be perfectly honest,
1: this has been probably the toughest and most challenging round of negotiations I've ever been engaged in. Um, you know, we've been at this for a very, very long time. Um, you know, had to take a, a strike vote, the largest strike vote in our union's history. We had to action that strike vote. Um, you know, if it hadn't been for the collective action of our members who work for the LDB and the four distribution centers, as well as thousands of members who refused overtime, which, you know, is money in their pockets, um, I don't think we would have made the gains we made over the last week. And our committee felt that at this point there was enough in the agreement that they needed to put it in front of uh, our membership for a vote.
0: Uh, when you look at the the finer points of this, though, and what's the, what's been agreed upon, how different is this? If we're looking at wage increases over the three-year period, how much more or is it much more than what was on the table from the government, the 11% or, or close to 11%?
1: Yeah, well, I think we have to look back even further than that, Jill. I mean, we took that strike vote when we had an incredibly insulting offer, in my opinion, of 5.75% over three years. Uh, It was increased. Um, but again, it didn't really meet what our members were saying they needed to see. And so that's when we actioned the strike vote. Um, we've more than doubled what that initial offer was. And beyond the general wage increases, there are things in this collective agreement that is going to put money directly into the pockets of members. Um, we've been able to address some historic issues in our administrative professionals component um LDB members uh there is a, a an issue that has been on the table for a number of rounds that we've finally solved that will put money directly in those members pockets and um there are a number of other things that address real recruitment and retention issues across various classifications And outside of money, there are things that are going to make a difference to our members, things that they said were lessons learned through the pandemic. So, you know, a commitment to look at flexible work arrangements, um, an understanding of the importance of good mental health and occupational health and safety. So there is enough, I think, um, when members get a real opportunity to ask their questions, to really dig into the details, that there's something for everyone in this agreement. And um, then it, it is their agreement and it will be up to them to vote. Uh,
0: so sorry, when you say more than doubled, though, what was initially on the table, you're talking if we go before the the last offer from government that had the 11%? Correct.
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, we we increased the general wage increase. Um, and, you know, again, uh, our members said clearly they didn't want to see a signing bonus. They wanted that rolled into um, general wage increases because of, you know, a signing bonus, you It's taxable. It it doesn't compound. There's not pensionable. Um, We were able to achieve that. Um, And in the first year, I mean, this is the thing about cost of living adjustments. So you look at those going backward. And in the first year of this agreement with the 25 cents an hour and the 3.24%, we are in fact for more than like uh, many, most uh, of our members are going to be ahead of what the cpi inflation rate was for the first year of the agreement um you know i ideally uh, we wouldn't have wanted to see caps in cola we weren't able to achieve that at the table
0: and can you talk a bit about the 25 cents per hour and, and I get what you're saying. So there's no signing bonus. That was the $2,500 signing bonus that had been part of the government offer. So that's been converted more into the wage increases that will be brought in if this is approved. Who is going to benefit then from the 25% per hour increase that's included in here?
1: Yes. Yeah, so as I said, you know, for the average BCGU member in the public service, they're going to be ahead of uh, rates of inflation from 21 to twenty-two, twenty twenty-one 2021 to 2022. For lower wage earners in this sector, and there are numbers of them, including BC Wildfire, again, our folks at the liquor store, um, many in the administrative um, professional uh, component, they're going to see higher percentage increases on their salary because of that 25 cents an hour it doesn't sound like a lot but it makes a real difference because when you only do percentage increases those at the top end of the earning scale their increases are higher and that gap between the lower end and the higher end gets greater and greater this is a way of addressing some of that low wage um it's kind of low wage redress if you will
0: And what are your thoughts then taking this to the union membership? I know there's there have been some rumblings uh, response to this already uh, saying that there's the potential that this could be divisive in that lower, lower paid workers still not uh, getting what they wanted and not having this, like you said, more tied to cost of living. Uh, What is your sense about taking this to the union membership?
1: Well, I, I mean, again, the committee felt that there was enough in this agreement that, that it now needs to be in front of the members um, for a decision. And, you know, I, I, I've i seen some of the social media posts and, you know, I've been getting some feedback from the members. And it, I I think those who are angry are always the ones that we hear from first. Um, and, you know, I hope that as we go through uh, the most important piece is the education forums, getting people to ask the questions that they have, uh, get the answers that uh, the members will see, as I said, that there is something for everyone within this agreement.
0: And when so when you say uh, you're getting feedback and those who are angry uh, speak first, is it safe to say then you're getting some negative feedback?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, again, I think, you know, um, looking at, uncapped cost of living adjustments um as i said we weren't able to achieve that in this round and and until people actually sort of crunch the numbers for themselves i think it's going to be difficult um you know again uh, as i said there are those additional pockets of money outside of the general wage increase those there are other things that are within the collective agreement that while non-monetary are going to make a big difference i think um and so it's you know we've put out the highlights but the full document won't be ready to be put out in front of members until early next week and then um, it's a matter of really as I said doing the education forums and making sure people really fully understand the
0: changes and, and the impacts that it'll have on them. All right Stephanie Smith thanks so much for joining us appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me Jill. That will immediately
1: affect your uh, ability to borrow money. It will immediately affect your variable rate
0: mortgage or your line of credit mortgage, uh, line of credit debt that you've taken out. That is financial expert Rabina ahmed Haq. She spoke earlier to Global News. We're talking about the Bank of Canada hiking the key interest rate to 3.25% and also saying the hikes are not over yet. So what does that mean if you have a variable mortgage or a fixed mortgage or you're just getting into the housing market. Well, joining us now to talk a bit more about that is Angela Calla, mortgage expert as well, author and host of The Mortgage Show here on CKNW. Angela, so great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here.
2: Oh, my pleasure, Jill. I have a lot to talk about.
0: <laughs> I was just going to say, I imagine you're getting a lot of questions today. So let's first talk about that. For people out there hearing about this interest rate hike, whether you have a variable rate or a fixed rate, what are you telling people?
2: Jill, we're all impacted and how it impacts us is individually based on our time and what our financial situation is. If you are in a fixed-rate mortgage right now, the best way to protect yourself against these inflationary pressures and the Bank of Canada having to do what they're comfortable doing is to pay your mortgage like a fixed-rate mortgage so you are prepared upon renewal and don't have payment shock. Um, Back in 2000, and, and six, we were talking about um, how people who have a fixed rate don't feel that they're impacted by variable rates. But inflation is a key that we can't ignore, regardless of where we are. Um, as a mortgage fundamental. So implementing that into any mortgage strategy is going to help you protect your equity and benefit from no future payment shock. So that's key one. So anyone who's in a fixed rate, wondering what to do, that's step one. Those in a variable, you certainly have had, um, you know, we've had 300 basis point increases. So this one impacts us um, $40 100,000 of mortgage. And right now, you can lock into a fixed rate mortgage for where Prime is going to be. So it's very clear for people who are getting a mortgage right now, and for the next few months, will likely be taking a fixed rate mortgage because the Bank of Canada has given us clarity on one thing, they are comfortable placing us into a recession, and they will do so with absolute force I absolutely suspect that Bank of uh, Bank Prime will be going to about 6.2% you know within the next 6 months so knowing that If you are in a variable, variable rate mortgages are generally prime minus something, but knowing that we're going up and knowing right now that fixed rates are based on the bond market and the bond market already factored in this most recent hike that we were expecting. So you can get a fixed rate right around where prime is, but I have to caution all the fixed rate mortgage holders that you want to be really mindful of which lending institution you do put a fixed rate mortgage in with because lenders that have posted interest rates that give you a discount off of what their posted interest rates are, use those rates against you when you will want to make a mortgage change down the road for the eventual time when interest rates do go down. However, I don't expect we'll see that for about three years.
0: So certainly fixed interest rates will be the favored product for the next uh, short term. Interesting. All right. And I just wanted to go back to a number you said there uh, for people then, monthly payments uh, that when you said the $42 per 100,000, so that's per 100,000 that you owe on your mortgage. uh, If you're in a variable, that's what you're going to see it go up? Correct. Uh, Or in a line of credit. Right. All right. Are you seeing people then asking or looking at perhaps locking in and, and getting a bit more security or stability there?
2: We certainly are are looking at that. There's a variety of strategies that Canadians are taking. Right now they are considering locking in, or they're considering if their discount is so low off of prime, how they're going to allocate their funds. Um, If they have debt outside of their mortgage that they were applying the surplus that they were utilizing between the fixed and variable spread before, they are looking at breaking their existing mortgage now. And including any debt that they may have had outside their mortgage, whether it be lines of credit, credit cards, car loans, student loans, life loans, renovation loans, you name it, Jill. We all have uh, different journeys that we're going through, um, but they're adding that into their mortgage to improve their cash flow, and so they're not having payment shock as well. They might be making adjustments to their amortization to ensure that their overall financial health and budget is in order and to prepare themselves for what's what's ahead
0: we have heard from the bank as well that more hikes are likely on the way what are you telling people then that say are in a fixed mortgage and they have their mortgage coming up for renewal next year or maybe in a couple of years or they've just signed into or just kind of nailed that down and are now looking a few years ahead knowing they're going to have to re-mortgage
2: Right. So, if you've gotten a mortgage in the last year, it's essential that your mortgage strategy includes paying your payment for the current fixed rates. So, fixed and variable rates, anyone who gets a mortgage is is um, approved on a stress test, so understand how you are stress tested and make your mortgage payment at that amount uh, because then you are protecting yourself against future payment shock to ensure that your payment isn't higher if you put that strategy in place and making small increments to your mortgage payment as interest rates change is more manageable for most of us than having to jump all at once for um, an amount that maybe we weren't prepared for and then of course That helps the principal pay down of the overall mortgage. So that's for Canadians who got a mortgage in the last year. Canadians who have a mortgage coming up for renewal in the next 24 months, don't wait. Start today. Get a rate hold. We can watch the market. And if it's beneficial for you to make a a change early because of where the numbers are, then that's what will be to your advantage. Or if you're feeling the squeeze and you need to readjust your finances and readjust your budget, With everything that we've all been dealing with over the last few years, then we could look at, of course, a different mortgage strategy that includes extending your amortization or, you know, restructuring your existing mortgage if you have debt outside to ensure that you are positioned the best that you can personally be best positioned with within our personal circumstances with our own employment uh, credit and, and income.
0: All right, Angela, good advice on this day when we saw this rate hike. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Always a pleasure, Jill. 12.35 on a Wednesday. That means it's time to check in with Claire Newell, the president of Travel Best Bets. Good afternoon to you.
3: Hi there, Jill. Um, It's uh, so nice to be chatting with you. It's a couple of weeks (laughs) that I haven't, so it's so lovely to have you back, I guess, with everyone. You know, kids back to school everyone back to work.
0: <laughs> it seems to be, yes. There were some musical chairs there for a while, but I think everyone's back in place now. It, yeah, it feels that it's way.
3: Quite, yeah, it's a big day today um, because there's, I, I'm seeing behind the scenes this big debate because coming up uh, tomorrow, new regulations uh, mending the air passenger protection, uh, take effect and I think Ottawa is under fire from two sides because the airlines are like what are you guys doing up until now these air passenger protection regulations required funds to be provided by the airlines if the flight disruptions were within the airline's control but now and even a situation that's outside of the airline's control they'll have to pay like we're talking labor shortages, weather, like it's just, and this all started because of the pandemic and then, you know, the chaos that happened during the summer. But on the other side of it, there are people, um, you know, a bunch of groups that are saying it's not going far enough. What I feel, it's kind of, uh, I feel somewhere in the middle. I I feel to me, this is closing some loopholes, giving some clarity around timing, cost coverage, method of payments, deadlines that uh, that you have to refund the travelers by but I feel like the airlines are taking responsibility for things that have nothing to do with them. Like what I'm worried about is, you know, some of the chaos this summer and um, you w- you'll remember it well, Jill, was because of the lack of security screeners or customs being, sl- you know, not having enough staff and slowing down and people missing flights or airport operations. There were at least partly to blame And now the airline is going to be the ones holding the bag, which I I feel is slightly unfair. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens because if they are having to pay out big penalties, they will be passing those along to us as consumers. And that's what I worry about.
0: Right because it's one thing and I think there was some frustration when it was the airline staffing issues saying well of yes. course that's in your control it's your staffing levels but you're right when it's outside of the airline itself that does make it seem a little bit a little bit strange
3: Yeah um you know as a pa- as a as a passenger and as a consumer of you know buying flights i feel like there are some good points within this um one of the things that uh, to keep in mind if if something does go sideways with you it will require the airlines to provide a passenger affected by a cancellation or a really lengthy delay again for any reason um, they have to get you on a flight that is operated by themselves or a partner airline leaving within 48 hours of the departure of the original ticket. Now, that's not going to be great if someone's going for a super short trip to a family reunion or a wedding, um, but it, it is it is important because if there is a flight with a, di- a different carrier, even just a couple of hours later, you can get on that. Um, it will also... It, it clearly identifies what costs have to be refunded. Um, it goes into the methods used for the refund. So it's going to the original form of payment, like a person's credit card. And then, um, that the airline has to provide any refunds within 30 days. So that kind of stuff, I like the clarification. Um, I don't think it's, uh, you know i I guess we 'll just wait and see what happens um, as far as the airlines because I know they 're going to start kicking and screaming when this actually takes effect.
0: all right, see, and like you said, that starts tomorrow, so we'll we 'll see what happens when that goes into play yeah. uh, let 's talk a little bit more about this is another interesting story uh, Royal Caribbean Group, and uh, they 're going all high speed connectivity.
3: They are. And you know, this is a really great piece of news uh, for me. I I like cruising. My my customers like cruising. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people who like it. One of the things that's always been a bit of a bone of contention, you know, uh, is the fact that the internet doesn't really work that well on any cruise line I've ever been on. But they're going all in on Elon Musk's SpaceX. Um, what they're calling Starlink. And they're going to be the first cruise line. It's the entire Royal Caribbean group. So this will take effect on Royal Caribbean ships, Celebrity, and Silver Sea ships. Um, They did a test on board one of the large ships called Freedom of the Seas. And they had awesome feedback from staff, like crew, who who I think they really rely on it because they want to talk to family and friends back at home. Um, when they're on board for these long contracts and from the actual customers themselves who were on board the ship. So the installation of this SpaceX Starlink will start immediately and it's all going to be completed by the end of March of 2023, so quite quickly.
0: Uh, And like you said, so many people will be pleased with that because hasn't it also been an issue that if, and to get internet access, to get quality access, it's also been really expensive.
3: Yeah, I don't know what the price is. I didn't see any information on that. I assume they're going to be charging what they normally charge, just like kind of the airlines, you know, you pay for your bag, you pay for your food. The airline, um the cruise lines have been charging for for internet, you know, over time. I hope that changes. Um maybe you could pay more if you want to like the real fast streaming, but At this stage of the game, people pay for the use of internet while on board. I know a lot of people don't even want to (laughs) connect when they're on vacation, but someone like me, probably yourself, want to stay stay fully connected. Another thing that's going to happen as far as connection... Um, is Amtrak. You may remember that there's been a route that was serviced for years and years and years between Seattle and Vancouver. And it was suspended because of the pandemic in 2020. But on September 26, it's coming back. So if you're a fan, they're going to be starting just once a day round trip service. And they're hoping that with the demand, as it increases, they'll add a second daily service, which was what they had previously. But this is uh, really good news um, for, for people who kind of rely on that and there were some people who like used it to to, because of work and and it was just a kind of a staple for them and it hasn't been there so it's coming back
0: so i would imagine though if for for the amtrak the cross-border service you would still unless things change you still need the arrive can and there's the possibility of being sent for a random test when you're coming back
3: yeah that none of that will change so um just keep that in mind if you are planning to do it still you know, need to be vaccinated. Um, uh, you ha- you have to be fully vaccinated to, to head down there. You need to wear a mask when you're on board trains in Canada. So that will all remain in play. Um, another piece of good news I wanted to mention, because I had a, I have a girlfriend who was uh, really watching this closely because she has a flight coming up with Lufthansa. And while you were uh, not on the show, last week I actually chatted about this with George um that there was a huge strike by lufthansa on september the second and then there was supposed to start another day of striking today but it was averted because every single time one day of strike happens with lufthansa it affects like 800 flights and about the ripple effect is 130,000 passengers so i you know it was chaos when the first round happened we had passengers who were affected they had lots of notice and we were able to get them on board other flights a day earlier or a day later but um i'm really pleased and if any if you're anyone's holding a lufthansa ticket and planning to head over to europe soon it's been averted the pilots uh have it sounds like the pilots union has reached an agreement with the airline
0: so that's really good news that is good news indeed <laughs> yeah. uh, we're also seeing some mask requirements being lifted as well in other places
3: yeah, one of the big ones is that Australia will be removing their mask requirement on flights. And that's going to start, start just two days from now on September the 9th. So, in addition to isolation periods for COVID 19 positive travelers, that will be now reduced from seven to five days. But for those who watch the travel between here and Australia, back in June, the Australian government dropped mask requirements in airports but not on planes. So there was a bit of confusion around this. So hopefully this new change will clarify the regulations on board their flights and in their airports, no masks required.
0: So will this mean though, if you're flying, say you're flying Qantas, you don't have to wear a mask, but if you're flying Air Canada, you do?
3: Exactly, because our Canadian airlines still require it. And that's happening all around the world. So it's um, it's also happening with things like uh, cruise lines where there there might be covid tests that are being dropped, but in Canada, it's not being dropped. Um, Other places like maybe Bermuda and Australia was on that list. Now um, that, that may change as well. So just something to keep in mind, always check no matter where you're going and which airline you're going with and what you have to do at the airports, because I just feel like you need a mask tucked in your back pocket because, you know, at some point you may have to pull it out.
0: All right. Probably good to uh, to do that while we still have a, a bit of a patchwork. Um, you also yeah. have good news about frequencies if you're somebody traveling to Delhi. Yeah. Now, this has been a
3: very popular route with Air India, and they are actually announcing that they're going to be increasing their frequency between Delhi and Vancouver from three times a week to daily service. And this actually just happened last week on August 31st. And this is just simply because they are seeing growing traffic between India and Canada. And they're also putting in um, a wide-body Boeing 777. If you don't know that aircraft, it's really fabulous. Um, that that aircraft is just, it's got, you know, the three classes of service. It's a nice big bird. You feel great coming off when oh, you're flying 777, so um, for anyone who does want to visit family or friends or go and see the Taj, um, this is great news. Um, the more flights we have in the system to any destination, cheaper it is typically for Canadians to travel.
0: All right, and one other story we should touch on, and this is for any fans of Las Vegas. Uh, there's a lot happening there.
3: Oh my gosh. Okay, so Vegas kind of reached pre-pandemic levels of tourists. Uh, before anyone else. And um, if you've been to Vegas or you're planning to go to Vegas, you know, concerts are back, restaurants, everything is like, nightclubs are open. <laughs> it's just kind of back to normal. And so much so that we're seeing a lot of the hotels start to um, spend some money. Some of them are doing soft furnishing. Some are doing complete overhauls. And the New York, New York Hotel, uh, if, you, if you've if you been to Vegas, you've probably have seen it, the big roller coaster out front. It actually opened in 1997. They're making... A brand new start of it, as they say. But they've announced plans for a $63 million room remodel. Super cute what they're doing. First of all, there will be about 2,000 rooms and suites that will get this um, whole overhaul. And it's scheduled to be completed by next summer. So you know, if you're thinking about Vegas for next year, because the rooms will be overhauled, this might be a hotel you want to see. What's cute about it is that they're going to all have exposed faux brick walls and you know for that new york vibe but they're also putting in like some accent colors including big apple red and taxi cab yellow um what i liked about it it's fun that they're they're doing that type of thing but the rooms will also have a lot of conveniences that i think are a key part of what today's traveler really wants so there will be movable work surfaces there'll be more usb power outlets and there will be a lot more shelving and closet space. So um, that's, a, that's it's good to see that uh, any time a hotel is doing an overhaul, it means that business is good and they're expecting more.
0: Earlier today, BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon held a ribbon cutting. This was to officially commemorate what he said would have been the grand opening of the new George Massey Bridge, the bridge to replace the tunnel.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, The opening of the bridge that should have been. There we go. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the result of an NDP government that made what I believe is one of the worst capital decisions ever in the history of the province of British Columbia. It is worse, I would argue, than the $1 billion they were planning to spend on a museum in Victoria that nobody asked for and nobody wanted. And why do I say that? because that 10-lane bridge would have been open today.
0: All right. Joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Ian Payton, the MLA for Delta South, also the BC liberal critic for agriculture and food. Thanks so much for taking some time with us.
4: Thanks. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh,
0: I know you were there for the official unveiling and there was a, a big sign with the word canceled on it. Uh, obviously this is a bit, a bit tongue in cheek to have a ribbon cutting, uh, but what, what are we looking at now as far as yes, this bridge would have opened perhaps even been open by now. Uh, is there any work being done as far as replacing that tunnel and building the new tunnel?
4: Well, Jill, as, um, as you know, back in 2017, uh, or 2016, actually, uh, there was a $100 million spent by the B.C. Liberal government preparing to, to build the new bridge. Uh, 600,000 tons of preload along the side of Highway 99, I'm sure everyone remembers that, all the sand. Um, The companies were doing uh, test pile driving um, uh, to support the uh, bridge. There was companies moving all the hydro lines to go over the river. So everything was moving uh, very nicely towards building the new bridge, which would be open today you know tongue-in-cheek of course but it's september of 2022 so we're saying it would have been open today and instead they've done absolutely nothing in five and a half years of government they killed the project instead of getting started with something else right away nothing has happened uh now they're saying it might get built by the year 2030 but you know getting the environmental assessment approved will be a real nightmare as far as i'm concerned
0: uh, and Kevin Falcon mentioned that, too. So during that news conference, he said that this is going to be bogged down with the environmental assessment, which is more complicated than one for a bridge. Uh, he also said if he was to become the premier, he would dust off the plans for the bridge. And as long as the tunnel project wasn't past the point of no return, he would dust off those plans and go back to building the bridge. How feasible is that?
4: Well, um you know, they they made an issue of the fact that we suggest that we would go back to building the bridge. However, you know, this is rather comical because it was the NDP government that came along and did the exact same thing. We had the bridge project well underway, and they're the ones that came along and killed it and said, well, let's, let's take a, a great long look at this thing and come up with a different idea. And their different idea is to go forward uh, in the future sometime with a tunnel again in the bottom of the Fraser River. And I mean, maybe you did stuff like that, plunking, you know, eight sections of a concrete tube in the bottom of the Fraser River in 1959. But you certainly don't do it nowadays with the environmental issues of salmon and sturgeon and all the marine life that we care about so much. So I just cannot see uh, a a concrete tube going back in the Fraser River uh, in the year 2030.
0: Uh, the bridge, if it had gone ahead and say the bridge opened last month or we it actually was opening today or, or around today, that plan did have tolls. Would it have been a bridge with tolls?
4: Absolutely not. And, and Kevin Falcon has repeatedly said that the NDP try and, you know, use this time and time again. But he's repeatedly said in the last year that we would certainly not go back to tolls whatsoever if it was a bridge Uh, that was completed now and ready ready to be opened.
0: So where would the business plan change then? Because you're right, and certainly we've seen this happen. We've had bridges with tolls. Uh, The Portman uh, was a tolled bridge, as everybody knows, and those tolls were taken off by the NDP. So there's nothing to say a Liberal government couldn't do the same thing, propose a bridge with tolls and remove those tolls. But how do you think the business plan would change then as far as getting the money to pay for the bridge?
4: Well, I mean... You know, my expertise is, of course, in agriculture, but we would have to be, you know, making a uh, a plea to the federal government to to help uh, fund the building of this bridge, which would be a pretty obvious um, uh, issue, I would think, if we were to move ahead with getting the bridge built. But of course, you know, we went out to procurement back in 2016 or 2017, and you know, don't forget. We had an estimated cost of $3.5 billion to build this bridge with all sorts of work on the, on the highways leading up to the bridge and interchanges. And the, the winning bid came in at $900 million less than what we expected. And now the NDP are saying they're going to spend over $4 billion and with inflation will probably get closer to $5 billion for less lanes than we had proposed with a 10-lane bridge.
0: And in the meantime, it's people that use that bridge, uh, sorry, that tunnel, people that drive that area, that commute or for whatever reason drive through that tunnel and know that you have to, if you're going north, you better do it before 3 p.m. If you're going back, it's going to be uh, pretty bad as well. In the meantime, is, is it getting worse as far as being a bad bottleneck?
4: Jill, even this morning when we did this announcement, which was right close to the entrance of the George Massey Tunnel, Believe it or not, even this morning at nine thirty in the morning, something happened, whether somebody had a flat tire in the tunnel, the traffic was was backed up for kilometers to get into the tunnel and Of course, as you said, with the counter flow there 's only one lane going south through the tunnel in the morning, and if you 're ever out there, if you 're a commuter, look at the massive lineup of diesel burning trucks trying to get through that tunnel in the morning inch by inch by inch to get to Tilbury Industrial Park, to the uh, U.S. border, to the uh, Port of Vancouver, to the Tawasson Ferry Terminal. It's it's a complete nightmare. And at night, as you say, Jill, uh, commuters are trying to go north through the tunnel, and there's only one lane at night for commuters heading north through the tunnel into the Richmond area.
0: All right. Ian Payton, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it.
4: You're welcome, Jill. Thank you.
0: Well, by the year 2050, almost 2 million people living in Canada could be living with some type of dementia. This is according to a new landmark study, and it shows that in 2020, it was estimated there were about 598,000 individuals living with dementia in Canada. And if we look ahead just a few years from now, by 2030, we can expect that number will reach close to 1 million people people. Well, here to talk more about this is Jennifer Lyle, CEO at the Alzheimer's Society of BC. Jennifer, thanks so much for being with us.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, There's some pretty stark numbers and, and pretty frightening numbers, I think, for a lot of people. Anybody that is familiar with this perhaps has had a loved one dealing with dementia. Can you talk a little bit more of this study and how did these numbers or how did the study come up with these findings?
5: Sure. And I think I want to address right off the bat as well, like people, the the comment around people's concern or fear around this. And I think what I would really encourage people to take away from this particular study is that this is a call to action. It paints a potential picture of what could await us in, you know, in 30 years or so, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And I think for us, it's really sort of that call to action to begin the planning process and address what we need to address now so that we're ready for what comes down the road. But in terms of what's behind these numbers, I mean the, the primary driver that we're looking at here is really the the aging of the baby boomer cohort and so that's sort of behind the rise in terms of the numbers we see here and from a BC perspective what that means is we can expect again if nothing changes that by 2050 we'll be looking at about a 218% increase in the number of British Columbians who are living with dementia at 2015, 2050 uh, as compared to today. So these are some significant numbers, and people should absolutely take pay attention to those.
0: And is it a factor then, or is it because we're going to see population increase and an aging population increase, or is it also that more people are being diagnosed?
5: It's, uh, it's mostly driven by population demographics. So BC has a reputation for being a desirable place to retire. And so we do see some of that, that dynamic play into how our population is structured. And again, we also see just see the aging of the baby boomer cohort. And that's one of the main drivers behind some of these numbers, because we know that one of the, the main risk factors that is not modifiable, so that means you don't have control over it, is age when it comes to cognitive impairments and dementia. So that's really
0: one of the driving factors behind it. And what about things like genetics, other things that we don't really have control over either? So there's a couple of things that
1: you
5: would you would call them non-modifiable risk factors. So there's, there's things that you, you can't really control or do much about. Age is one of them. Uh, sex assigned at birth is another. Genetics plays a role as well. But there's also a series of risk factors that are modifiable. And one of the interesting things that's been coming out of the research field over the past several years is this concept that Uh, There are a series of risk factors over which we have control, either at a population level or an individual level, that potentially influence the likelihood that we may develop dementia later on down the road. So things like, for example, physical activity, uh, exposure to air pollution, head injuries, diets, um, social connection, all of these things can potentially either increase or, or act as a protective factor when it comes to somebody's likelihood of developing dementia later on in life.
0: And that's an interesting one too. So do we know how much, if we look at those things that do have an impact and the things you just mentioned, diet, exercise, uh, the kind of the, the life that we're, we're leading now, how much can that combat, like you said, we can't control age, uh, we're all getting older, but how much can modifying those parts of our lifestyles actually help us or help people to not develop dementia?
5: The research out there puts the estimate in at around 40%. So this idea that about 40% of dementia cases may be linked back to those modifiable risk factors. So, you know, there are things that, that we should absolutely be looking at and I think going back to my earlier comment around this report should really be seen as a call to action. There's aspects of population health that we should, we should be addressing. There are, of course, continued investments needed in research. And I would say more broadly, we need to really look at what we need to do within our communities, within our healthcare system to make it inclusive for people who are living with dementia because it's possible to live well with dementia. And if we look at the numbers that may potentially be coming down the pike, it's even more incumbent upon us to make sure that people who are living with dementia are, you know, don't run into stigma and are welcomed and included in the communities
0: in which they live. Right. And did the report look at that as far as the caregivers and people that have loved ones who are living with dementia? Because you're right. And in many cases, uh, people stay at home for as long as they can. Uh, And from even from stories I hear from people, I mean, it can be very overwhelming when it gets more advanced. But are we paying enough attention to the importance of caregivers and, and staying as healthy as you can, even after a dementia diagnosis?
5: Family care partners are absolutely critical. And if you look at the number of hours on average family care partners provide to family members by way of support who are living with dementia, it's substantial. It's essentially equivalent to a part-time job. You're looking at about 26 hours a week on average. Uh, We also know that about 88% of family care partners are of working age. So these are people who are likely juggling uh, young children or teenagers, they're providing support to an older family member or friend, and then they're also working. So it's pretty significant. And if we look at the numbers going forward, and again, look at the projections in through to 2050, what we can see is that uh, here in BC, family care partners will be responsible for providing about 200 million hours of support per year, And so they're absolutely an integral part of the system and we need to ensure that they have access
0: to the education, the tools, the skills, the support that they need to be successful in their role too. And I like how you said that this is a call to action and that there are things people can do to prevent this, to to better manage this. But knowing that we won't get the number down to zero and we do still need health care and supports for people, especially people when they get to the advanced stage. Are we doing enough, do you think, to prepare for that and make sure it's not just warehousing people, that there is health care that that is respectful and 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 a better way, I suppose, to deal with this?
5: We've certainly made some progress, but I think the the challenge that we're all acutely aware of right now is how much stress our healthcare system is under presently. And we also know from people who uh, were affected by dementia throughout the pandemic that those sorts of systems within the healthcare system, primary care, home care, day programs, uh, respite services, those were severely cut back in response to the pandemic because of all the other pressures on the healthcare system. So you look at that, you consider our current context, and it's, it's reasonable to question whether or not we have the healthcare system capacity to support these needs going forward. So, again, you know, I think it's important that we, we have these conversations now. We make those investments now. And we also look outside the healthcare system at what our communities can do to address more of those social determinants of health. Things like connection, physical activity, dementia inclusive spaces, all of those pieces so that we can be prepared for what's potentially coming down the, coming down the pike.
0: And when we talk about dementia and Alzheimer's dementia, are we talking about something that that in case to case has the same symptoms or the same kind of factors that, that we can see and we can recognize? Or is it really different depending on the person and depending on the circumstances? It can vary. And I think
5: that's one of the challenges that people who are, are living with some form of cognitive impairment or dementia face, uh, first and foremost, identifying the symptoms and then being able to get a diagnosis. So I think that's, that's still a significant challenge. And I'd encourage anybody who wants to learn more about dementia to go to alzheimerbc.org for more information. But it, it can look different for different people. Uh, we see different types and clusters of symptoms depending on the type of dementia, so for example Lewy body dementia looks different than Alzheimer's disease usually. Uh, frontotemporal dementia looks a little different than Lewy body disease, but it can also vary, very much from person to person. And the progression of the disease is not uniform. So somebody may be able to may live with a very form of mild cognitive impairment for a number of years, whereas someone else may progress fairly quickly. So it's really unique, and the best thing that people can do is, is get educated. And so, again, I would really encourage people to go to alzheimerbc.org. Or if you have any questions, I mean, reach out to your, your primary
0: care practitioner, too. They're there to help. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Jennifer Lyle, thank you so much, though, for joining us and for sharing some of the findings of this study and what things might look like. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for the conversation.